Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmer's Day, May 31st, 2021. Happy Memorial Day, and it's the unofficial kickoff of summer. On the show today, news, listener questions, plus in our main segment, Jim gives us the history of on-ride photos in Disney theme parks. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that moving to a new home can cost thousands of dollars, so spend a little more to buy your movers' jackets that say FBI in big yellow letters. It'll be fun. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Well, you know, it, it, at least <laughs> Not you, against the law, Jim. Not no, against the law. Though, that's so much more interesting when you pay them to carry belongings into your house. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, when they're carrying it out, at least the neighbors talk. You know, that on the other hand, when they're carrying them in, you just confuse people. You did know? you know they did this? Exactly. Wow. <laughs> I, I've watched hours of CSI. They've never done this before. And it's like. My, my other idea was witness protection program. Oh. <laughs> like, like to make it obvious what's going on. There you go. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Denise, ADB Berkeley, MJ Coat, and Sour Gummy. And longtime subscribers, Thomas Walker, Jason Muir, Garland, and Jason Hoover. Jim, these are the folks Disney sent to Jamaica to learn the dark arts of necromancy. Once they realized that crabs only turn red once they're cooked, so in Little Mermaid, Sebastian is a zombie. Plus, voodoo helps preserve shellfish a lot longer, and that boosts restaurant buffet profits. True story. You've effectively made it, so I'm never going to a red lobster ever again. But <laughs> I bring this up for two reasons. One, I thought it was funny, too. Mm-hmm. Did you see that earlier this week, Caesar's Palace announced the return of its buffet, which had been closed during the pandemic. Did you see what happened? They announced it on Tuesday. No, what happened? 10,000 reservation requests in one day for the buffet. (laughs) Holy cow. 10,000 buffet reservations in one day. Wow. Okay. And I was trying to think to myself, like, like how much food, how much food is that? Mm Mm-hmm. Because you you know you're not just preparing the the ten thousand things that people want to eat. You've got to mm-hmm. give them a variety of things. Mm-hmm. Like how do you? What is day one? <laughs> is there just like an air raid siren playing in the back of Caesar's Palace starting now? But like people are scrambling to start dicing vegetables and stuff. Like what does that look like? Think about the poor guy working in the prime rib station where it's like, you know, yes, sir, I know you want, you want an end cut. Now put down the gun. There's only so many ends. He doesn't have a knife. He has one of those Swedish bow saws. There you go. That you use to trim. He's just like cutting this as fast as he can. Yeah, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> By the way, you just mentioned Sebastian. I guess we should also mention that we lost Samuel Wright this past week I on know, Monday. Sad. That the original voice of Sebastian, also the gentleman who first played uh, Mufasa on Broadway in The Lion King. Got to see him in that show. He was amazing. A, a truly talented guy, and, and you know, we'll genuinely miss him. Oh, that's a shame. Yep. But we have his work, so that's good. We do. We do. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, the big news just happened like a few minutes before we started recording. Universal has raised its minimum wage for team members to $15 an hour. Mm. So clearly, Jim, this is a sign that mm. theme parks are looking for more labor than they're currently getting. Also, this is Universal kind of waving the flag to the effect of, hey, those of you who work for the mouse is another operation just down the street here. And that reminds me, Jim, we're starting a new segment of the show, which I like to call... 
Well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of my own actions coming back to bite me on the butt. Maybe Aaron can throw some sound effects in there. Anyway, uh, I'd like to point out that Disney is hiring cast members for Food and Biv. Mm-hmm. The starting wage is $14 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Watch that space, Len. Watch that space. Okay. <laughs> not for long, Jim. Yeah. Not for long. Also, Disney says that they've hired back 80% of the furlough staff. And I think they said it, or it was uh, Steve over at WW Magic who was commenting on it, who said basically 80% is what they think they can get back. So they're 20% down from where they were, and they need to find people. Um, some other way. So, uh, yeah, I would expect that the other shoe would drop on that pretty soon. Yes, yes. This is also Bob Chapek trying to put the best possible face on this situation, the financial community. So, so it's good. That means that uh, that Universal has, has decided that things like um, one-time bonuses and things like that don't work. Mm-hmm. And so that's good news for everybody who's in the theme park industry in Central Port. I agree. Awesome. Also, uh, Disneyland announced that they will open to out-of-state guests on June 16th, and that is the same day that the reimagined Jungle Cruise will open also in Disneyland. What are, what are your thoughts on that, Jim? I was wondering if our guy Guy has chatted with you about this. Evidently, they haven't been checking all that hard in regard to whether or not you're a California resident at the entrance of the parks, but I'm sure we'll probably talk about this later in the show, that some of the news that's recently broken about in regard to Web Slingers and Rise of the Resistance, how, right. know, for, for example, guests can't hold a pass for both of these attractions on the same day. Right. It's sounding tougher and tougher to to have a nice casual day at the happiest place on earth. Well, we're going to talk a little bit uh, in a little bit about uh, virtual queue management because there's mm-hmm. an interesting Disney patent on that. But yet, I, so I know that to buy a Disneyland ticket, you mm-hmm. must provide a billing address that's in California. Like there's no other option mm-hmm. on the drop down menu for states mm-hmm. for your billing address other than California. And that's how they're preventing it. So I think they're just assuming that that's the way that they're going to prevent this from happening, for prevent people from out of state uh, getting into the parks. But in two and a half weeks, that'll all be uh, irrelevant. Yeah, kind of a moot point. So Fantastic. All right, Jim, let's do uh, uh, some surveys that our listeners have sent in. Our friend Kim sent in an annual pass holder survey she got from Disney. And there are a couple of interesting questions on it that I hadn't seen yet. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was this. As your pass access allows and you're able to visit, are you more or less likely to visit in each of the following ways? The three categories are more likely, no change, less likely. And the, the questions are visit for a half day or a few hours, visit for a full day, visit on days or times that are less crowded, visit on weekends, and visit on weekdays. And Jim, the reason why I'm reading this question to you is, mm-hmm. do you think that Disney would ever segment their annual passes so that let's say you didn't need reservations for like Wednesdays, for example. The thing to remember here is that there is such an incentive at this point to get the parks back to their former financial footing, to, you know, as many of the hotels open, as the parks as full as possible. And that does include the traditionally slower days of the week and that sort of thing. And if during this period they're trying to adjust the annual pass program in such a way that you you are actually pushing folks in that direction to the effect of, you know, we'll have a pass program, but you got to use it on Wednesdays. I can see them going this route. I just, I realize people are very eager to get back to the parks and the folks who 
who've had annual passes in the past really want them back and want the perks. But if it's that limited or with those sorts of strictures in place, I wonder how many people will respond. Well, the thing that I'm interested in with this question is we've not seen at Walt Disney World mm -hmm. the same sort of questions that we saw in Disneyland mm -hmm. for annual passes regarding different options that would be available at different price points. And I wonder how much survey questions like this are designed to help inform Disney World as they figure out what the next version of their annual pass program looks like. Remember, we're still dealing with this period where Disney employees are still only going into physically into work a couple of days a week. Mostly it's, yeah. it's from home, that sort of thing. But Bob Chapek is firmly taking up the reins at this point. Bob Iger is definitely headed out the door. And, and Chapek right. wants to make significant changes to the way that the theme parks operate to make sure right. that it's the actual day guest, the one that spends the Generates most the money. most money. Yeah. <laughs> spends that, the most, yeah. That they're front and center. So he's asked that a close look is taken at the Disneyland annual pass program as well as the Walt Disney World program, you know, which didn't have the same sort of pressure on it that the Anaheim program did. And in which I, I will tell you is causing some grumbling in Orlando, largely along the lines of why fix what ain't broke. But we'll talk about that later. It's definitely going to be a bigger change in Disneyland. But mm -hmm. to your point, I think that's absolutely what management wants to do to mm -hmm. turn Disneyland into, into less of a local spark and more mm -hmm. of a come by our mm -hmm. resort, stay at our hotels, spend a few days rather than just dropping in for a couple of hours, maybe going on a ride, maybe buying, you know, one soda. They're looking to put the big spenders front and center. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's understandable. And as someone who, who doesn't live in Southern California, who only visits and would like to see that. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I can, I can definitely see that. But God forbid they do that in, in my home park. Which is Walt Disney World. <laughs> there we go. Forget <laughs> about up, Nikki. Let's talk about NIMBY. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> All right, Jim. And uh, our friend Gabby hmm. got a survey from Disney after a recent stay at Disney's Polynesian Resort. And we were just talking about maintenance or uh, sorry, we were just talking about staffing levels at Walt Disney World. So, uh, so this question is relevant. Please rate your experience with the staff and facilities in each of the areas below at Disney's Polynesian Villas and Bungalows. Maintenance and engineering, housekeeping, bell services, front desks, DVC, merchant retail, and food and bev. So the questions are along the lines of, did we have enough people and were they happy enough to be there for that? So clearly Disney's looking at the effects of staffing shortages on, on people. But how much, Jim, do you think the answers to these questions would inform Disney the next time there's an economic downturn and they needed to reduce headcount. They needed to lay people off. Would they look at this and say, you know what? The last time we did this, you know, when we laid off X many people, it took us this many years for our satisfaction numbers to, re to rebound. You look at a survey like this, especially one for the poly that's being done at this point, where you can knock the ball back into play. Let's go, well, of course, our results weren't what, what we were hoping for, but, but we're a construction site. Have you seen the front of the building? Oh, it's going on. We're down 20% staff. Look at the construction. Half the, half the resort isn't open. What do you? No, that's yeah. it exactly. Yeah. And, it just, and it's one of these oh, things true. always with, with the Disney surveys is, is that, yes, they're written in such a way that they're looking for answers, but so many of the folks at the resorts have w been working there for so long it's like they're sitting there with their tennis racket ready to knock it back into play. It's like, oh, well, yes, of course, we got those results. But if you consider these factors. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, any question about food and Bev that doesn't mention the fact that Ohana is closed? I mean, what are you going to do? There you go. Right? There you go. There's so, only so many flavors of Dole Whip you can come out with <laughs> for a, a Tangaroa Terrace to make up for that, right? Somebody on Twitter posted a picture of basically them standing there with a, their hand on the door of Trader Sam's. And it's like, let me in! And it's like, <laughs> you know, so... Soon, soon enough. Yep. All right. The, uh, the other question that Gabby got that was interesting, there's a few more actually. Mm-hmm. One was, please rate your experience with Walt Disney World transportation mm-hmm. during your stay at Disney's Polynesian Villas and Bungalows. And the thing that I found interesting about this question is they explicitly said, this does not include transportation to and from the airport. <laughs> so, they're, so they know that Mears yeah. is not happy about the end of, of Magical Express. Yeah, uh, I want to say it was was our buddy Derek Bergen who uh, just mentioned. I guess he was either bringing folks to the airport or picking folks up in Orlando, and he went inside to you know was downstairs with the the Disney Express, and he said, "I've never yeah. seen a line that long there yeah. before in my life," and that just it, it looks like, like oh, we've visited Calcutta. This is great. Yeah, I mean, just but it's one of these things where it's like it's not enough. To announce you're shutting down the program, you also have to make the, the experience of the people in the months leading up to the shutdown miserable. It's like <laughs> so that nobody misses it. Yeah, what what is that achieve, Len? I don't understand that. I think, it, I think it's just staffing. I think they're they're all understaffed. I mean, if you oh, look at there you go, they don't have enough bus drivers. Mm-hmm. Number one, Mears doesn't have enough bus drivers. Mm-hmm. You look at car rental places. Car rental places sold off their in- inventory last year. A car is you know seven hundred dollars a week now. Mm-hmm. In Orlando, it's everybody laid off people so fast and it's difficult to hire them back. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's what it is there. Okay. I get that. Yeah. Well, here's an interesting question though, that, uh, that was on Gabby's survey that I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. And it's this, to what extent would you say your room at Disney's Polynesian village resort and bungalows was zero, just like any other hotel room or 10 uniquely Disney. So there's numbers between one and 10. Hmm. And I've never seen that before, but I think like we've been saying this for a while in the unofficial guide that if you look at the rooms like at Grandestino Tower, or if you look at the rooms at the, the Riviera, right, you could take a few posters and some wallpaper, maybe a couple of light fixtures and switch them out. And you'd basically have the same room hmm. anywhere, right? There's, there's not the theming that you would get like at Animal Kingdom Lodge. Right. That or Wilderness Lodge that says, I am definitely in a specific place and time. And so I, I wonder if this is Disney saying, you know, have we gotten away from theming too much? Didn't we just do a survey at the Poly, which is in the middle of, you know, it's big Moana retheme? I mean, you know, it, it's, right. yeah. it seems like. At least, you know, the resort is giving appearances that this is a priority. So, well, it could be that they're doing a before and after as well. Well, there you go. We've been hearing rumors about that change out of the wave at the Contemporary with, with oh. going with a uh, Incredibles theme restaurant. Yeah, I think the whole resort is going Incredibles. Okay, okay. There, there are definitely uh, scrims up all along the Concourse Valley right now. Mm. Okay. All right. Last question from uh, from Gabby, and this was interesting because uh, it refers to mobile ordering in in. So she had said that she had had some trouble with mobile ordering at quick service restaurants. And so the, they asked a follow-up question, you know, why? And Gabby responded, um, I was the only one in my travel party with uh, the MDE app, and it made it difficult for someone else to go grab the rest of the party's food without me there, as I had to either hand over my phone to someone else or to be present, which made it inconvenient at times like breakfast when we're not all there together. So that's super interesting. I hadn't thought about that. If you've got one person who's basically handling all of MDE, and I think 
for most of our listeners, the, the people who are listening to the show, you're the person who's running the show when it yeah. comes to MD. You're making the reservations for everybody. You're handling all the fast pass stuff, all of the mechanics involved with MDE. And I had I never thought about that as a as a problem. But yeah, if you've got a large group, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's an actual thing. Yeah, I get that. When you think, for example, if you want to share information with somebody with an iPhone, they literally, what, you bump the back of the phones together and there yeah. you have the info. It's like, you're telling me nobody at Disney has, uh, well, it's a giant family party. And of course, they're going to send the kid down to get the food while mom and dad are wrestling the rest of the children into clothes. It's exactly. Like, you know. Yes. And the teenager. So you think, do you think that there'd be a way to like text this QR code yeah. that says my food is ready, text this to another phone and have them show it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Doesn't you know where to send the checks? <laughs> there you go. All right. One quick uh, time for one quick listener question. This one from Phil. Mm-hmm. Metro Express is going away in January of 2022. Does that also mean that they're doing away with airline check-in and baggage handling to the airport as well? Phil, my guess is the answer to that is absolutely yes. They will get rid of it mm-hmm. because there's nowhere for them to give the bags because there's not going to be transportation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my sense is that airline check-in is not going to be a priority, both in terms of having to hire people for it and then Disney figuring out what are they getting for the money that they're paying those people. Mm. There's an entire generation of Disney world guests whose arms are normal length, who don't have that one arm that's six inches longer from carrying the heavy suitcase. And it's just sort of like, there are bad times headed our way, Lynn. You can, you can do it with Uber, but I think there's a, there's an interesting idea here. Mm-hmm. There's a business opportunity somewhere in there. I just don't know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Basically like, you know, you're, you're, let's say you're checking out at, you know, at 8 a.m. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you can store your bags at the hotel, but that means that let's say if you're going from, let's say you're staying at the Contemporary, but you're going to Animal Kingdom mm-hmm. for whatever reason. It means you have to go from Animal Kingdom back to the Contemporary, then then over to the airport. Like there seems seems like that there could be a thing where it's like, I'm just going to drop my bags off with Uber at 8 a.m. and they're going to show up at the airport and I pick them up there somewhere. Like that would be a thing. Yeah. Huh. Once we get on the other side of the pandemic recovery, coupled with the 50th anniversary, maybe some of these ideas will actually come to the table. Yeah, so, you know, at some point there'll be some sort of revenue generation idea five years from now where it's like, you know what we should do? We should make it easier for guests to get to and from the airport yeah. with their bags. <laughs> and then it'll, it'll start all over again. <laughs> Anyone who's paid attention to the cycle with Disney and gaming, it's like, yes, you know, th- this we, is the We're in the gaming business. No, <laughs> oh. we're firing everybody. We're selling off. Hey, hey we just bought a, a gaming company. There you go. <laughs> All right, Jim, real quick, uh, a Disney patent application was uh, published last week. I wanted to go over it for a couple of reasons. It's called Dynamic Management of Virtual Queues. It describes how it would manage guests who had multiple reservations for multiple virtual queues. Now, you had mentioned um, earlier about in Disneyland, you can't have a virtual queue reservation for both Rise of the Resistance and was it Jungle Cruise, you said? Uh, Actually, no, Web Slingers. Web Slinger, sorry, that's right. So one at Disneyland and one at DCA. Mm-hmm. Um, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. One, I had heard for a while that um, when Disney was, as Disney's working on Genie, one of the big concerns that they have is they really want to schedule your, your day down to the minute where it's like step one, you know, go to this attraction at like 8.22 in the morning. Step two, go to this attraction at 9.14 in the morning and so on all the way through. And the problem with that is, you know, when you've got, when you do this at scale, if you give everybody, um, if you put everybody through some sort of routing algorithm, it could do something like send everyone to Dumbo mm-hmm. first, 
right? And so the line to Dumbo would not be 11,000 people long, and that would be bad, right? It's entirely possible. Like it's, it's literally the, one of the specific problems that I know that they had to deal with. Mm-hmm. And this is a way of managing that because it's got four parts. The four parts of this virtual queue management is a queue enrollment module, which says, basically, I'm going to put this person um, in the queue. A queue metrics analysis module, which basically says, now that I've put this person in the queue, how many people are in the queue and how is this affecting the wait time? A summoning module, which sounds like some high-tech version of Harry Potter. I was about to say, I, I feel like I, hang on, I need to get my burnt offering. We're approaching the <laughs> summoning module. So It's your time. Yes. <laughs> And then an expiration module, which says if you haven't shown up, mm-hmm. what to do then. So this tells me a couple of things. One is, if you look at what Genie's going to do, Genie's going to be basically a collection of virtual queues that you're in. Mm-hmm. And it'll tell you, like, as you go throughout the day, hey, you're close to this attraction. We think we can fit you in. Or this is the next thing that we have you going to. So it, this solves the particular problem of scheduling people at multiple attractions without sending everyone to the same attraction first. But the other interesting thing about this, if you look at the people who are on this patent, Mm -hmm. virtually all of them are Disneyland. And we haven't heard anything about Genie at Disneyland, right? If you think about like FastPass Plus, FastPass Plus only exists in Walt Disney World, right? Magic Pans only exist in Walt Disney World. Yeah, and that's been since 2013, 2000. Yeah, it never, it never, and I think we've talked about this, but the cost of implementing all that stuff in Disneyland, mm-hmm. especially when it was mostly for locals who weren't going to use it, right? Yeah. But that's changing now, right? And we talked, yeah. we talked a few minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's one thing to file a patent. It's another thing to actually see, you know, this to implement out, it. Yeah, out in the field. But yeah, this is fascinating. It's still a super a super complicated problem to do by itself, like mm-hmm. setting aside the, the optimization part, but just doing this alone is a, is a complicated problem. So, yes, we'll see. Okay. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jimmy gives us the history of on-ride photos at Disney theme parks. We'll be right back. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we begin, Jim, I picked up a copy of Beating the Odds, the Leonard Goldenson book oh, hey. of ABC. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's it's uh it's like 800 pages and it's hardback. It's the it's mm-hmm. the size of like one of those readers digest, you know, non-condensed books. But it you're right. It so it, it did a couple of interesting it had a couple of interesting things in it. One, uh, it relayed the story about how Walt went to ABC for money for um, for Disneyland and how the negotiations went. And then as the uh, negotiations broke down, mm-hmm. how ABC tried to salvage the deal with the food concessions. Mm-hmm. But the other interesting thing that was in the book that uh, we haven't talked about is is this. When NBC approached 
Walt about doing color. Mm. The reason why Walt was intrigued was that advertisers were paying more money for color commercials than black and white. And ABC Mm -hmm. being the far smallest of the three broadcast Mm -hmm. companies didn't have the money to invest in color transmitters and color cameras yet. So they were slower in adopting it. So Walt was looking at it and saying, I can make more money for my shows if I switch to color. He offered ABC the deal and ABC says this just because they've had their relationship. Mm -hmm. And ABC looked at that and said, you know what? There's absolutely no way we're going to compete with NBC because NBC apparently was owned at the time. Was it was it by RCA and they owned the oh, patents yeah. on color television? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So on. so they, they basically it was like we're going to have to pay NBC to, to broadcast in color as ABC, mm-hmm. and they they weren't going to do that. So what they said was we need to negotiate our way out of this because we're going to lose we're going to lose Disney. Mm-hmm. What can we ask for? And then they're like, oh, we'll ask for the fast food concessions. What was particularly competitive of what ABC did as Walt was heading out the door is they turned to William Hanna and Joseph Barbera and said, okay, we had a show that appealed to kids. What can you guys give us? And that's where the Flintstones came from. Yep. They took the money that they would have paid Walt and we got the first primetime animated series, which led to now the the new moneymaker for Disney, The Simpsons. So fascinating to, to watch how the world folds back in on itself sometimes. The other thing I didn't realize was after um, ABC was done with Disneyland, they invested in uh, Wikiwachi Spring in Florida. And before Walt Disney World, Mm -hmm. it was actually the single most popular tourist destination on the East Coast. I've got the Orlando Land magazine from of course own. you do. <laughs> Why wouldn't you, Jim? <laughs> well, I get them from 71, 72, and they actually, sure, sure. They, they actually walk through all of the attractions in Florida, and they do talk about, you know, here's ABC continuing to put money into Wikiwachi and trying to be competitive in that market space. So, yep. I mean, they had learned. They learned, exactly. Yeah. They learned, right. yes. That's fantastic. Mm. All right. So let me ask this question. In the 1960s, mm. were there any uh, wiki-watchy onboard cameras where you could get a picture of yourself with a mermaid? No. And, and if it, <sighs> you could stand in front of the glass and you know, the teenage uh-huh. girl wearing the mermaid fin would, would be in the background waiting with her air hose. And you got to remember what cameras were like back in that day, Len. You'd take uh-huh. the picture. You'd go home with your reel of film. You'd, you'd send it off to be developed. You would come back, and and the flash would have been wrong. So all you have is grandma standing in front of you know a sheet of glass, and you can't see what's behind her. <laughs> I mean, it just it it was what it was. If you get right down to it, you know Disneyland. You know when it opened back in July '55 was the original Pixar. If it didn't happen, place so many people. It was so brand new. It quickly became the most photographed spot on the planet. In fact, to this day, it remains so. I mean, back in 2017, Instagram revealed, based on Instagram uh, hashtags alone, uh, mm-hmm. happiest place on earth is the most photographed, most popular tourism destination in the globe. 23 million hashtags related to just Disneyland. It's funny because I uh, we we advise you know colleges and students all the time when they do undertake Disney research. So we provide you know whatever data we have. So we had one of the students who had done a um, text analysis mm-hmm. of words on Twitter related to Walt Disney World mm-hmm. to see if it could help predict crowd levels mm-hmm. the next day. Like you know if you've got a bunch of people who are tweeting about Walt Disney World on one day, does it tell you anything about what the crowds are going to be like the next day? And the interesting mm-hmm. thing was, um, so she had looked at a set of keywords related to Walt Disney World, mm-hmm. and you can query the Twitter API mm-hmm. 
and ask it for, um, you know, give me a set of tweets in this geographic area with these keywords in it. And in one day, she said she got like 18,000 tweets. Oh. Just about Walt Disney World. I think it was, I think she'd actually even narrowed it down to like the Magic Kingdom. Okay. And how many of those keywords were hot, crowded? Hot, <laughs> humid, <laughs> smell. <laughs> All the different ways you can smell, you can smell stank. Oh. <laughs> It's a surprisingly creative uh, etymology there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So from day one, Disneyland has been, you know, one of the more photographed places on the planet. But 1950s, we didn't use our phones. You know, you had to bring a really feral camera. You had to take the film out of the camera in just the right way to not expose things or for that matter, load it in. And you only had 16 to 24 images per roll of film. So you were making choices about which photos to take. And yeah, like, is this, is this worth the $3 it's going to cost me to develop or whatever? Yeah, that's it. Exactly. And in fact, conversely, if you talk with veteran Disney theme park employees, you know, the folks who started was an hourly doing, you know, one of the characters in the park. If you did that job in the 1960s, your title was pageant helper. You couldn't reveal the character that you did. The closest okay. you could come is you could say, well, I'm a friend of Mickey's. And that's still the nomenclature used now. There I'm we a go. Of Mickey. Okay. But they were told, the, the people who were playing the characters at that time, it's like, look, film is expensive. So yeah. if you're out there posing with somebody's kids, stand still. I don't want another one of those letters at guest relations where it's like, my vacation was ruined because Goofy moved while I was trying to take the picture with my kid. But at the same time, you know, everybody wanted shots of their families on rides. You know, that how many dads put their kids and, and wife on the skyway and then ran down to the Matterhorn and kept watching the skies so that, you know, the sky bucket to come over with the, their family. And in yeah. turn, how many fights were had in the park later? Because it's like, I stood there, I waited. You know, it's like, we waved, you didn't see us. <laughs> we're wearing the red shirts. Uh, I mean, there we yeah, go. Yeah. But there was clearly this appetite out there among the guests to get photos of family members experiencing our yeah, action photos. Yeah. 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 But the problem there is if you if you look at that, you're in situations like the people who used to crowd around the splashdown pool at yep. the Matterhorn bobsleds, and and you're leaning against in against a wrought iron fence, but you have no idea when your family actually got out of the queue and got on the ride, or for that right. matter, the you ride. could be there for an hour. Yeah, and to be there for that blink and you miss it moment when the bobsled comes hurtling down the mountain at 27 miles an hour. And again, you've got your unsophisticated camera from that period. This is why, really, if you look at a lot of the photos from the the 50s and the 60s, the images we have at people at Disneyland are happy family getting on the Snow White (laughs) scary adventure ride, followed by image in the unload area where traumatized child is is weeping. It's the classic before and after. Oh, no, no, absolutely. But but now we jump ahead to the next generation of Imagineers, the Tony Baxters, the Bruce Gordons, the Dave Mumfords, Southern California kids who grew up going to Disneyland Park and had regularly experienced the place as a guest before they then went to work for WED. And these guys recognized how frustrating it was for people to come to the family fun park and try to get photos, especially when the 60s gave way to the 70s and suddenly you see the rise of... These audio animatronic filled attractions, you know, yeah. like Pirates and Mansion, and even the indoor thrill rides like Space Mountain, where 
These rides are housed in huge, dark show buildings. Dark buildings, yeah. And the only way to get an image is to use a flash. And of course, when you're standing there in a queue, you keep hearing that message, no flash photography, please. And this really came to a head in September of 79 when Big Thunder Mountain Railroad opened. This is something that Tony Baxter himself designed. And he actually built into the ride that spot along Big Thunder Trail where you have the train suddenly sort of swing out and then go back into the mountain. Yep, and there's a similar spot in, in World over by Thompson Island. There's that little standoff area with the, the spring around it where you can take pictures of the That's it, exactly. train. Is, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, so that, was, that was Tony? That, well, again, the whole notion was that I, I had seen frustrated people and let's create a place where you can go and get a decent picture. But the problem with us Disney nerds is that's not enough. We want pictures on the attraction. And especially with something like Big Thunder, which has wonderful show scenes like the goat with the dynamite. So people would pull out their cameras <laughs> as they're- <laughs> which, weighed, which weighed three pounds and you're on a roller coaster going 35 miles an hour. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. You know, and, and, and the weird part of it is there was always somebody up in the control tower who, if they saw a guest pull out the camera, would actually get on the PA system and it's, please put away your camera and that sort of thing. But so many guests- because as you mentioned, you know, the, the tight turns moving at 35 mile an hour, camera would fly out of their hand and break. So we now jump ahead to, to July of 1989. Splash Mountain is just open. And while the slum ride is an immediate hit with guests, it's also opened eight months behind schedule then. It also went way, way, way over budget. It originally supposed to cost just $35 million to build. They will admit that it costs 70, you know, though, if you talk with folks. <laughs> 105. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's it exactly. Oh, sorry. You I know. was joking there. Aaron, you can edit that. No, <laughs> no, no, no. You are not wrong. All right. You know, they're just when you're doubling the original price and that's what you're willing to admit to. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like saying, well, you know, I put on 10 pounds during the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. 20. <laughs> everyone, every, everyone understands what it is, right? I mean, we're not. <laughs> it's like that line out of friends, you know, the, the, well, the camera puts on 10 pounds. It's like, well, how many cameras are on you at this time? How many cameras are on? Was that Chandler that did that line? I believe so. I really. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I love funny. that joke. So anyway grossly overspent on the construction of this attraction. And yes, Disneyland is making a lot of money from admissions for people coming to Splash Mountain. In fact, I, I want to say in 1988, they had 13 million people go to the park in 1989. And remember, Splash Up is in the middle of the year. Yeah. They had 14.4 million people show up. So, you know, they were making money, but there was this pressure from Disneyland to the effect that we're going to make back that money somehow, right? And a problem here is, if you you remember where the Briar Patch is located, the gift shop for Splash Mountain, you actually have to exit the attraction, walk back up the hill, and don't you have to even cut through the queue to get into the shop? It's complicated to get to it. Disney talks about how when you get off an attraction, there's a, a 57 second long window where your sales resistance is so low that you'll buy anything. That's, for example, why Rock and Roller Coasters gift shop is like right there. Well, same thing with pirates. If you get off the boat, you yeah. go up the world's shortest ramp and it's like gift shop. It's like, oh, I, I must have a shot glass. Why? I don't know, but I must have a shot glass. So they just were not selling a lot of Splash Mountain merch. Well, the other thing with, with Splash, too, is everyone is so wet, it's the thing that they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. 
by the time you've walked up that hill, you're already looking for your next ride to ride. You're not right. thinking, I want to buy merch. If you remember the layout of Disneyland's version of Splash Mountain, mm-hmm. as you walk into Critter Country, there is literally a bridge that takes you by Chickapen Hill. This is Tony. This is the beauty shot. This is the exact place you can stand to get a photo of your family as they plunge through their deaths down into the briar patch. <laughs> but again, it's the same issue. You put your family in line, and this is 1989. This is prior to cell phones. And mm-hmm. you, so you have no clue when they actually make it through You know, the very, very extended gear for Splash Round, more to the point you have no idea where they are on the ride, when they're going to come down the hill. So it's it's the luck of the draw if you, you manage to recognize your family at the top of Chickaben Hill and then grab that photo. But from the imagination standing there and watching people stand there in the hot Southern California sun for hours trying to get that shot, it's the effect of, well, what if there were a way to sell the photo that people so desperately seem to want to get that photo and then sell it to them? What are we able to do it in that 57 long, second long window as they got off of Splash Mountain? Which is why, I mean, mind you, it, it took some two and a half years to work out the kinks. But in January of 1992, this is when Professor Barnaby Owl's photographic art studio opens in the post-show area of this Critter Country ride. And it is immediately a hit with guests. And they found... A price point, I want to say it was $7.95. Right. It's just the whole notion. You step off the ride, you see the monitors. It's like, oh, look, I'm screaming. I have to have this photo. From an ops point of view, this immediately became an issue because guests that had previously just sort of, as you mentioned, they're soaking wet. They march right through. Now they're stopping. Now they're stopping. Not only are they stopping, but they're dripping Len. And so they, they literally now had to position a cast member whose job was to mop up the floor around the counter at Barnaby's to make sure that nobody slipped and fell as they were trying to buy their photo. So in World, mm-hmm. we know that the photo location where you can see the photos mm-hmm. is before the gift shop. It's You get off the ride, you, make, uh, you walk down a short hallway, you make a, a right, and then the photos are right there. It's within, to your point, it's well within the 60 seconds mm-hmm. that, you, that you've gotten off the ride. In Disneyland, where do they put the ride photos between the right exit and the uh, and the, I want to say less than thirty feet down the hall. I mean, again, they had to work with the available space they had, and in fact, one of the things that was largely frustrating about this project is when they went to go put the shop in, because they were concerned about what they had learned with Pirates of the Caribbean that you don't want to put wooden props into an attraction that has a water flume in it. Things right. will get wood rot. And so just literally having to go in with jackhammers because so much of Splash Mountain was sculpted concrete and rebar. Right. And so to create the space to actually have the shop was one of the reasons it was two and a half years from, hey, we should do this to it finally took place. But yeah, I mean, it was literally right down the hall. But when we saw the proliferation of post-ride photos, Disney did eventually learn. This then became part of the design process to the effect of, okay, we're doing Tower of Terror. So we need, as part of our queue space, a place where guests, as they're getting off the ride, somewhere between here and the exit, a space that allows guests to walk by, but at the same time, that, that subset of guests who will automatically want this photo, and they began to finesse this over time. Now, sadly, and in fact, just this 
this past year on March 1st, we saw Barnaby's close at Splash Mountain. This wasn't a closure that was related to COVID, because remember, the parks don't close due to the pandemic till March 13th. Now, this actually was another thing of sort of technology moving on. And, And what Disney had learned the hard way is that now guests would get off the attraction walk down to the area where their their on-ride photo was being projected and they just whip out their phone and grab and it. take a picture of the picture yeah and yeah. that's all they needed they didn't need the you know well now 1795 photo yeah. i just need this image to blast it out on twitter so june of last year we learned about uh, a princess and the frog themed redo of splash mountain which by right. the way the West Coast version uh, has been fast-tracked. It will be the first one out of the gate. As for image capture, folks, or, or what's going on with, with uh, Barnaby Owl's photographic art studio, when Len and I get a clear picture of what's actually happening with this image capture setup, we will let you know. Also, uh, are we going to talk about uh, Angry Splash Mountain Lady? <laughs> there was also the other aspect of Splash Mountain, Flash Mountain. Flash run. All right, we'll talk about that on the next show then. Okay, cool. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including a new show on the history of World of Color at Disney's California Adventure. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me at Len at TouringPlans.com. On next week's show, we'll finish up the story of on-ride photos, and we'll also talk about the history of the Mission to Mars attraction in Tomorrowland. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be running the chuck wagon with Grandma Adams' homemade chili recipe and judging the cowboy poetry contest at the 2021 Old West Days this week at the Teton County Fairgrounds in beautiful downtown Jackson, Wyoming. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.